I'm Andy Crouch, inviting you to download and listen to the new Beer Edge podcast, a source for news, information, and insight regarding the brewing industry and the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. The show, co-hosted by John Hall and I, talks with key players on the front lines of the beer business to give you insights and advice on how to navigate these uncharted waters. The Beer Edge podcast is available on all major platforms, or you can visit us at beeredge.com podcasts. Thanks for your support. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall, and this week, much like last week, has me thinking about spring. We moved into a new house last year, and I have a proper yard for the first time in a long time, and so I've been thinking a lot about planting. I'm going to start out easy with some more common vegetables and herbs like tomato, basil, and hot pepper, and if we get a decent harvest, I'll jar some sauce and make some hot sauce, and I'll dry out the rest of the peppers. I've also been baking a bunch over the last few weeks of COVID-19 restrictions, and while I haven't gone down the sourdough starter roll yet, I'm working towards it. In thinking about food that comes from the ground and real bread that takes time, plus drinking a lot of beer, I thought about Scratch Brewing in Ava, Illinois. So I called up Marika Josephson, one of the founders, to talk about foraging, brewing with local ingredients, and reviving some long-forgotten processes to make some of the more interesting beers in America today. I'll tell you more about that in a minute, but first, this episode is sponsored by New Holland Brewing. Dragon's Milk began as a single-barrel experiment almost 20 years ago at New Holland Brewing Company and has since grown to become the best-selling American-made stout. Aged for at least 90 days in bourbon barrels, rich notes of roasted malt, chocolate, and vanilla make for a deliciously smooth and drinkable brew. Whether it's sitting by a bonfire or virtually toasting over Zoom, share a legend with Dragon's Milk today. Learn more at dragonsmilk.com. And of course, we're sponsored and produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. Help support journalism covering the beer industry by subscribing to the twice-weekly newsletter. Learn more at our revamped website, beeredge.com. So I first became aware of Scratch Brewing Company at a foraged beer event many years ago during the Great American Beer Festival. Scratch Brewing Company is a farmhouse brewery located just five miles from the Shawnee National Forest in southern Illinois, and it's owned by Josephson and Aaron Clyden. And it focuses on farmhouse beers and other styles brewed with homegrown and locally farmed and foraged ingredients. The brewery has an ever-rotating selection of styles enhanced by innovative additions of local ingredients such as nettle, elderberry, ginger, dandelion, maple sap, hickory, lavender, Juniper, and Chantrelle Mushrooms, according to their website. They're big on showcasing the terroir of Southern Illinois, and that's highlighted in their restaurant on site as well. We get so stuck on styles and so much of the same flavors that come with IPAs and certain hop combinations that beers like the one Scratch is producing are refreshing and can really open up the mind to what's possible in brewing, even if it comes from our own backyard. What better time to think about growth than right now? And with the current season in mind, that's where I started with Josephson. Here's our conversation. What does spring mean to you in terms of the brewery? Spring is uh, such a wonderful time of year around the brewery. Um, We really kind of, we're really just digging in the winter 
to find things to brew with, literally um, digging up roots um, or other plants that we can kind of identify because there's still maybe a little branch or something um, or a stem that's still sticking up out of the ground. And or we're brewing with stuff that we've preserved earlier in the year, brewing through things that we have um, frozen in our freezers or dehydrated and dried and saved for the winter. Um, but Southern Illinois is, is very bare, very barren in the winter. Um, we don't have a lot of evergreens here. So, um, the trees are, the trees are bare. It's kind of gray and very brown here. Um, on the other hand, in the summer in Southern Illinois, it's just like a tropical paradise. It's so <laughs> humid and warm here. And all of the trees are so fully grown out. You almost can't even walk through some trails that, you know, you can see for miles um, in the winter. And so the spring is kind of, you know, that middle ground of things are starting to pop up again. It's green. It's so, it feels so good to be out in the sun. There's no mosquitoes or fleas or, or, um, ticks or anything out yet. Um, so it's a really wonderful time to be in the woods here. Um, and it just feels like a revitalization and we're excited to be brewing with stuff that we are seeing pop up again. And um, it just, it feels like a welcoming time, I think too. You know, we're, we're just welcome to see the plants again. I know you do a lot of foraging with your beers, and I want to talk about that in a, in, in, in a minute. Do, do, are you also planting? Do you? Yes, we do. Um, we have one full-time farmer on staff, um, and he plants our garden. We have, I don't know, somewhere between a half acre and an acre of garden on site at the brewery. And we actually just got a, a high tunnel um, as well that, that we planted for the first time this last uh, I, I don't season. know what that is. It's like a greenhouse. Um, Yeah, so it sits on the property and it it keeps the plants um, warm in the cooler months. Um, So we were able to get some stuff in the ground a little bit earlier and and out of the ground earlier than we would have otherwise. Um, It's been able to just kind of speed things up. And also... And it's um, called a high tunnel? High tunnel, yeah. It's shaped like a tunnel. It's sort of like a half moon shape and it's long like a tunnel. Okay. yeah, Chris and Adrian, um, they're a couple and they are our farmers. Um, Chris is our full-timer and Adrian's part-time. She also does our baking. Um, they have been growing here in Southern Illinois for, um, gosh, it's probably about been about a decade. And they've experimented with a lot of things that other people hadn't grown before they did. And, and um, ginger and turmeric are two of those things, but they grow those in their high tunnel. Um, it just allows for the right conditions for it to grow well. So it's just another tool in our toolbox. Um, so we grow on site at Scratch and then at a couple other locations nearby where we just have a little bit more land and space to grow. Are there ingredients are there uh you know things that you're growing that you use more of than others i mean i I, in going through your beer list and knowing your your beers for for years now you know Mm -hmm. it it always seems like it's so diverse um Mm -hmm. are there are there go-to items though like i'm thinking in the way that like some breweries have you know really just made you know citra mosaic their calling card is 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 there something that you've gravitated towards i think i would say Actually, basil, as far as stuff that we grow uh, ourselves, that we cultivate ourselves, basil is a big one. 
Um, we obviously, we use that in our uh, kitchen as well on pizzas, but basil was one of the things that we decided to put in the high tunnel this year so that we would have it a little bit earlier and hopefully have um, several crops of it even um, so that we could use it a little bit more this year. We also especially like to use it when it's young. Um, it When it gets older, it kind of gets woody and a little bit more bitter and you can really taste that in the beer as much as you can even if you were say making pesto or even eating it fresh um and we think that that kind of comes through in the beer too so we really like it when it's younger um and a little fresher so so our our hope this year was that we would actually be able to kind of capture it at just the right time to be able to make beer with it and maybe even make a little bit more beer with it than we did in the past. And it really is one of the ones that people just absolutely love. Like any beer we make with basil is just killer. People love it. As opposed to making a beer with cilantro where uh, 50% <laughs> of people would uh, scream that they hate it. Yeah. Um, including myself. Oh, yeah. are you, uh, are you anti? Uh... <laughs> I'm one of those. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's curious though of, I, I, I using it young um, and Mm -hmm. discovering that you like using it young. Are are there, you've obviously ran trials and done experiments and tried different ingredients uh, at at different points in their own life cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, How how do you approach that? How do you think about when something is going to be right to use in one of your beers? Because again, it's, it's so, it's so different from, you know, a brewery that gets pelletized hops or whole cone hops or, or whatever, where, as long as it's in the fridge, like they know what it's probably going to taste like. Like right. you're, you're playing with, with a whole, like whole different set of tools. So I'm curious as to yeah. how you, how you approach that, I guess is how, yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. Cause I think that it, it speaks a little bit to, yeah, what our process is in general um, and, and how we're creating beer and how we're using the ingredients that we use. Um, you know, we, I've, I've told people this before, but a lot of times we'll mash in a beer, um, but don't know what we're brewing yet. So we'll get the beer mashed in. We'll know, okay, this is going to be like a base farmhouse ale, you know, kind of a blonde, light blonde, easy drinking thing. And then we'll go out in the woods during a time of year where there's a lot of things in the woods, you know, kind of now through September-ish. And we'll just see what's growing and what, you know, kind of smell what's out there and have about an hour to kind of make a decision and harvest something and then bring it back. But, you know, walking out, not knowing what you're going to do and then being inspired and then trying something and then seeing what it's like is so much a part of the process of what we do at Scratch um, that I think that sort of encapsulates um the nature of how we find out what we like or don't like the fact that we're growing a lot of the stuff on site too. And, you know, we try a beer early on when we harvest the basil and we, we still have basil in the ground. And so maybe a couple months later we harvest it again for the same beer and realize, Oh, this tastes really different. And we really preferred it the, the first way. Um, and then decide, okay, well, next year, let's just do the first harvest on this basil. And maybe the second harvest will be for pesto or, uh, we'll dry it and we'll use it in the winter, um, on pizzas or something like that. Um, or we'll dry it and we'll see what happens when we put it in a beer dried, you know, 
we're, I think we have a little bit of a farmer's mentality at Scratch where we want to preserve as much as we possibly can and use it any way we possibly can. Otherwise, it feels like a waste um, because we put so much time and energy into into growing stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or even, uh, you know, say harvesting something in the woods or, or like Aaron did, you know, harvesting a tree. And it has so much um, that comes with it. It comes with, you know, leaves. It comes with branches and roots and it comes with a grapevine. And that you then turned into a beer. Yeah. Right. Right. Or, and, and maybe we've never tried using the root of this tree or we've never tried using the branch of this tree. And of course, making sure it's safe to do so first and then trying it and seeing what happens. So, yeah. Well, you just touched on something safe to do so. Mm -hmm. I mean, cause there are, you know, I, I remember, you know, I grew up far from a farm in suburban New Jersey where it was always any mushroom that was growing in the ground was going to be poisonous. And, mm-hmm. you know, so the only safe ones came in the you know plastic container from the grocery store, which, right. you know, it, it took me a while to, as I you know started to get older to you know experience you know, what real mushrooms could be. Um, mm-hmm. But there are concerns, right, of negative reactions that you can get from just pulling something out of the ground and. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm brewing with it. Right. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I, I'm very lucky because Aaron grew up in the woods here and has a passion for plants um, and uh, has learned a lot over the years and, and has a, a, an amazing number of, of resources that we consult all the time um, when we're identifying something that we haven't used before or something like that. Um, there's lists of of toxicity the fda has them we always consult that stuff first if we are using something that we haven't used before um and then also numerous books that that talk about toxicity of plants and of course we would never use something if we weren't 100 percent sure of the identification either um it's a life aaron talks about this a lot that foraging is a lifelong process of learning um and that sometimes it takes seven or eight resources or books um or people um to consult to really know something well um as far as mushroom goes, mushrooms go because we use those a lot and have a lot that grow around here. You know, there's a couple, there's really only a couple that are poisonous. And so knowing those first, so mm-hmm. you know what not to pick is the best kind of way to go. And yeah, um, yeah uh, but having a mycologist nearby who can consult, we can consult when we need to is, is helpful too. But it's a, it is a lifelong process. It's not something that that you and and I'm just learning myself. You know, I'm I'm a transplant here too. I've only been here for about 11 years, but I grew up in Southern California, so very different place, different kinds of plants. Um, but you know, it's it it's not something that you can learn overnight, and shouldn't expect yourself to be able to do it either. And that's I, I think that's sort of like the great reward of the beers that you make is from 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 a drinking standpoint is mm-hmm. that it is so different from pretty much anything else that I can get anywhere else you know it's not mm-hmm. just another you know hazy IPA which are you know fine on their own but like it's it's mm-hmm. it's it's something that really does sort of convey a sense of place but also you know this sort of creativity um mm-hmm. that 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 goes into it when when you were talking about starting a beer and then going out and foraging for ingredients or deciding what you're going to pick. Do you really just sort of see what catches your eye and what goes from there? Or do you sometimes have 
at least something in the back of your mind of like, <laughs> like, oh, I saw this last week. Maybe I'll grab this. Or is it yeah. really that spontaneous? It's sometimes it's that spontaneous. Um, but it, uh, yeah, the inspiration works in, in many different ways. That's for sure. Um, so uh, other times what may happen is that that Aaron may be in a walk um, in the woods and uh, he may, here's an example of something where we haven't tried it before. Maybe he'll pick something, um, that he knows, but he knows we've never used before. And so he'll bring it back, um, into the brew house and we'll all kind of like, you know, smell it and sort of taste it. And then we'll, um, make a tea with it. So put it in some boiling hot water and see what flavors and aromas come out, see how bitter it is. And then we kind of, it's a little bit like a jazz session. I always say it's like, you know, we'll start riffing on, on different ideas. You know, somebody, it might remind somebody of something they've eaten or drink, drank before, or um, maybe somebody thinks about a, it reminds them of a beer or they immediately think of a beer style that it would go well with. And then we start kind of, you know, just jamming on, on different uh, flavor profiles or fermentation profiles and what would work well together. And then if we're really inspired to make something, um, we'll make a batch. And depending on how confident we are with the flavors that we've just been discussing yeah uh will make us maybe a smaller batch or a bigger batch depends um what, what's a a, of, what's a small batch for you guys a small batch so one turn on our small propane system um is about 49 gallons so about a barrel and a half and a big batch for us is about eight barrels and that's that's one that we would brew outside on our wood-fired copper kettle how much because there's always concerns I know with 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 foraging and 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 you guys certainly take it seriously but you don't want to take too much you don't want to mm -hmm. you know yeah so how much does that factor into like how how much do you need of certain ingredients like have you figured that out over time of yeah. okay yeah that's a good that's a good question too yeah um definitely some ingredients you need more than others to to be able to taste them um, and, and there's a little bit of a balancing act too, between how much you want to taste it and how much you don't want to taste it, you know, how much you want it to be a background note or kind of blend into the beer as a whole and how much you do want it to kind of come to the fore. Like I would say with our basil beers, we do want the basil to be perceptible in that. And part of the fun with that beer is that there's so many flavor compounds, chemical compounds in basil that are similar to or the same as hop um, chemical flavor compounds and, and aroma compounds. And and so part of the fun with that beer is how it plays with hop flavors and aromas. And so we want it to be as prominent as, as a hop note can be. Um, but then other beers like with our spring tonic, you know, the, the variety of greens that we use and the ginger, we kind of want that all to blend together. And it has a very distinctive flavor, but you would never be able to pick out like this is dandelion and this is clover and this is like wild carrot greens um well, stuff but, like that, that. but that's such an interesting thing though because i don't know how many people i mean maybe it, by you it's it, it's different but like i don't know if i'd necessarily be able to identify what dandelion greens taste like or mm -hmm. you know or what wild carrot greens taste like as opposed to right. you know some of the other more 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 common you know flavors that are out there or greens that are out there yeah. Uh huh. And it, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. And 
Yeah, sure. No, fair enough. That's totally true. Yeah, those are probably ones that that maybe blend a little bit more into a background note anyway. But I'm, maybe I'm thinking more of something like um, maybe it's like like our blackberry lavender beer, where the lavender is meant to be a little bit more of a background note, background note. Like you do taste it. It has a cinnamon character. It's not supposed to be in your face floral hmm. soap perfume, you know, like uh, sometimes like flowers can be. Um, but in general, I would say that our, our preference um, in beer is, is kind of leans to the Belgian side where, you know, we hope that these things kind of blend together for the most part, for most of our beers, not for all of them, but for most of them, that they kind of all blend together and just make a something that tastes good, but maybe you can't pick out all the different things and put your finger on it. What I've always been struck with though, on beers that are brewed with herbs for, for, for the most part, um, mm-hmm. is how they evolve over time. Uh, yeah. you know, if, if you, if you have something in your cellar and you drink it fresh versus, uh, you know, letting it change and, and, and mature over time, mm-hmm. what's your, what's your hope for when people buy your beer? Do you want them to drink it fresh? Do you only release beers when they are ready to be consumed? Um, or should a, people little, be laying some bottles down? It's a little bit of a mix. Um, and and we've been bottling for about five years now. So uh, it's it's kind of an interesting, I have like a, a catalog of our beers in my cellar at home and I, I crack them open every once in a while just to see how a three-year-old or a four-year-old beer tastes of, of all the different things that we've made. And it is really interesting to see how they change and evolve and they certainly do. Um, some beers are definitely better fresh. Um, and we've, we've kind of been able to notice which ones those are over the years too. We found that the ones we brew with, uh, sassafras leaves, for instance, um, they're so, so bright and, and citrusy, um, when they're young and, and they really start to lose that over time. Um, and sometimes the, the ones we brew with, uh, Eastern red cedar juniper, that's the kind of juniper we have around here. Um, that, that really nice, you know, gin like, um, juniper character does start to die off over, uh, over the course of a year. So those ones, um, I would not probably prefer to age, but then we have some other ones like, uh, we brewed a beer with chaga mushrooms last year that was one that we would hope uh, would age really well. Um, the chaga mushroom has this uh, really strong, like sort of tannin to it. Um, and uh, it's used as a tea often. So we boiled it like a tea for like five hours straight. Oh, we wow. made this really concentrated, almost like a really concentrated black tea. And we put it into an old ale. So it was a beer that we wanted to be able to age for a while. We we added this extra tannin character, kind of like you would if you were, you know, a nice red wine that's going to age for a while, has that tannin structure, in the hopes that this beer would would age well. And so far, it's been a little over a year. And I think it's drinking better now than it did when we bottled it. And I'm cu- really curious to see what happens with a lot of our sour beers. We've, um, I've tasted through a number of them over the years. And I think that a lot of them still taste really good. I think some of the fruited ones maybe have the fruit character has been lost a little bit. Um, but some of the other ones like, like our spring tonic, our dandelion tonic, maybe there's something about the ginger or other kind of preservative nature of some of the things in that beer. But I think those ones still taste really good, really fresh, bright and, and green. 
do you think dandelions get a bad rap? <laughs> I do. There's so many great things to do with dandelions. Yeah, from every single part of that plant. And that's such a fun plant for people to maybe use if they're homebrewing. Uh, I always recommend that one to homebrewers who are looking for a place to start with foraged ingredients because everybody knows what a dandelion looks like. There's just (laughs) no way to mistake it for something that's poisonous. It's in your yard. It's so easy to pick. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's so easy to pick. And there's so many different things you can do with it. You can pick the flowers and use it. Um, Just use the flowers to add a floral character that's really nice. You can use the whole entire thing and put it in like a, a bitter, an ESB, or just a ordinary bitter. It's such a nice little um, plant for a beer like that. Really? Or, yeah, it's so good. <laughs> um, or you can roast the root in your just in your home oven, get it to like sort of a chocolatey kind of stage, and then um, grind it up and put it into like a stout. And it really does add like a coffee kind of character to it, to, to your beer. So there's so many fun ways to play around with it. And it, it's 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 so versatile and it's just so easy to identify and a really fun it's a fun plant to get you kind of into using wild ingredients i know you've built a brewery and a reputation off of wild ingredients and 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 foraging and creating uh, these really just special and i and i really very rarely use the word uh but unique uh beers Mm -hmm. One of the things, though, that I've always been struck by is the process as well. It's not just mm-hmm. normal brew days for you, for 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 Scratch when you guys are 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 making beers. And and mm-hmm. I was reading through your website, and I was struck by oven beer, mm-hmm. uh, where it says here the mash was baked in our hearth oven uh, for three hours until it caramelized, and then uh, the wort was run off and fermented with uh, sourdough bread culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, just putting a beer in the oven, like, I mean, it's one thing to boil it, but it, it's, you're, you're playing around with techniques, it seems, all right. the time. You know, you have this mm-hmm. wind beer as well um, that I noticed where you had, uh, where you wind dried uh, malt over the top of the malt house, I guess, last mm-hmm. summer. And then, yeah. but no other heating method to, to you know, stop germination. Um, right. I what's the approach? I mean, I, I'm sort of stunned by all of these, just by these two examples. And then there's countless others that, that you've done, but you're really sort of playing with the notion of brewing tradition. It seems like. Yeah, we are. Um, we are very much inspired by, by, by history and historical methods. Um, and, you know, our use of, um, cedar and juniper was was very much inspired by um norwegian farmhouse beers um and finnish farmhouse beers and um how that ingredient was used in in those beers way back when um and it was you know some of the earlier things that we were doing to experiment as homebrewers before we even opened scratch was just how do we use some of these ingredients um that we haven't seen used before um and we started digging into to history to see how other people had used them and then did it you know tried it and saw what happened and then you know in the course of continuing to use those ingredients learned a little bit more about them and and more about them and um 
and then, then kind of developed our own way of using them. But a lot of times the inspiration starts with how other people have used them. Aaron and I have gotten so much out of, of travel. We've been so lucky to travel for the brewery um, and talk about what we're doing, but it's also allowed us to, to learn other people's techniques and, and, and their history of brewing and to come back and try it at home and, um, and to, to continue to develop um, off of it with, with what we're doing. And, and also we work with inspiring people. Um, our, we get all of our malt from Sugar Creek Malt in Indiana, and he's our closest uh, micro maltster. Mm-hmm. Um, he built this incredible sign house in the last year, which is, um, I believe, the only Norwegian-inspired um, malt house that's wood-fired in North America. And one of the biggest, actually, uh, even when you compare it to other ones in Norway. Um, and it was Caleb that did that made that wind malt over his malt house last year, and we were just lucky to be able to play with it. Um, but yeah, just just also being able to to connect with other people in the industry that are doing innovative things always inspires us too. When you go and you find some of these techniques from history, um, because I mean, brewing really as a whole has become a very streamlined process, and it's become mm-hmm. very. Uh, formulaic in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. When you revive some of these older techniques that, that, that you found, do you think, I guess it's a two-pronged question, like did history choose the wrong path by leaving some of these behind or did they choose the right one by you know, not? <laughs> I think maybe there's two answers to that question. One is we've certainly been able to dial in quality over the years and there is something to be said for that uh having a a streamlined brew house um for breweries that are making a lot of beer um with reliable equipment um and laboratories is really good for quality um and i'm grateful that i could go to a any store and pick up a six pack um, from Sierra Nevada and rest assured of the quality of what I'm going to get out of that bottle. Of course. Um, and it's def- definitely that's, you know, we don't have a lab at Scratch. Um, we do send our stuff to a lab if we have questions about things, but, um, you know, it, it also frees us up. And that's the other side of the coin is that our brew house is looks very much unlike a lot of modern brew houses. We, when we do our eight barrel batches, we're mashing into punchins that we cut the heads off of and we drop um, false bottoms into the bottom. Or sometimes we actually just drop branches in and that works as an amazing mash filter. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and we're running that um, into our copper kettle and then we're bringing it to a boil. And, you know, yesterday's boil was so frustrating because why did it take an hour and a half to get to a boil? I don't know, but it put us, you know, behind for the whole rest of the day. And because we're building a fire under the kettle. Um, and, but, but that, but it also like, we have so much flexibility in what we do. Um, and Aaron and I are both very um, experimental type people who also care a lot about the end product. So, you know, we, we love to experiment. We also want to make sure that anything that goes out to somebody having a drink of our beer is the best that it could possibly be. We're not shy about dumping stuff if it doesn't taste right. I was going to ask about that, of, of how often you find yourself having to kill a batch. 
man, I mean, we we dumped a couple batches in the last few weeks that the fermentation just didn't go right, you know, and we just didn't want that beer. It wasn't what we wanted. And it's always heartbreaking to do it because so much time and energy and, and thought and everything goes into it. But yeah, it, it happens for sure. A lot of times it's more fermentation related than than the plant not quite being right because we do um we do air a little bit on the side of caution when we're brewing with stuff we haven't brewed with before uh mostly because we don't want to have to dump a batch um but also yeah but also just you know because we prefer let's say a lighter hand than than a heavier hand and you can always add more but you can't take stuff out um once it's all brewed together but um, but, but we, we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of room for innovation and, and flexibility with our brew house and our, our setup. And that's, that's the one side that I think is unfortunately lost with, with large scale brewing, I would say more than anything, you know, cause you just get locked into, um, you know, what you have to produce at a certain scale and, um, it makes it hard to, to experiment. It sounds like that is sort of the lifeblood of the brewery is experimentation and finding inspiration, you know, from from nature. I'm I'm curious as to how Scratch has evolved from what you first envisioned it would be to where it is now, mm-hmm. and where you might even like to see it go or evolve into. Yeah, I. That's a good question. I, I think it's. Um, I think it's very much in line with what we had originally envisioned. I think we, you know, it's, it was always the goal of the brewery that we would create something that had a sense of place. And we knew that our place was in the woods. You know, we were built, we were building our building from scratch, you know, in the woods where we knew we would be harvesting a lot of the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's amazing that we've been able to employ so many people um, in our business. I definitely did not envision that i didn't know how big or not big we would be and we're not huge i mean we have a staff of of eight you know at the end of the day we're not that that large but i mean we started with just the three of us owners and i never thought we would even be any bigger than that really um that we've been able to have a full-time farmer on staff and we've been able to you know give him full-time work um that's a really good feeling actually. And it, it, I'm glad that, that the farming side is, is um, as important to our brewery as it is and that we've been able to, to cultivate that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think that we've really, really stayed true to what was the original vision of the brewery um, f- from the beginning. And we've really grown uh, naturally from that. And, and I think the brewery still is, um, just, just what we thought it would be and just, just a little bit bigger really. And I don't, we don't really see ourselves growing, um, at all, uh, at the current moment, especially, especially at the current moment. Well, I, I, I didn't, Uh, I didn't mean like getting bigger or expanding or putting in, you know, tap rooms or anything like that. I, I, I guess I, I more, I've always sort of seen your beers as like, a really wonderful, almost like a restaurant in, in, in some mm-hmm. way. And I know you, you obviously serve food, but like, you know, but you have this sort of, you know, chef mentality where, you know, the really great chefs continue to evolve and continue to change their game. And, you mm-hmm. know, people keep coming back because they, they have trust in, you know, the chef, like regardless of what's going to be on the menu. Yeah. Um, 
you know, but they're, it seems to me that they're always sort of pushing themselves creatively. So when I meant like, you know, evolution or like what's next, I, I, I really, I could never imagine you guys like franchising out or anything, but like, <laughs> right. um, but like where, 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 do, like, where are you looking for inspiration? Do you think, or what yeah. could be next in that front? Gotcha. Um, yeah, I guess I was kind of thinking like that, that the scale that we're at um, allows us to continue to do what we've been doing, which is allowing our experimentation to evolve or our, our beers and our um, process to evolve, which is kind of how I think, I think of um, what's happened at scratch over the last seven years, where we started out with kind of a, a certain knowledge of, of what we had of, of certain plants and how they acted in our beer and from there our base of knowledge has just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown so you know we let's say um i don't know we knew that we could use certain parts of trees in our beer but we never knew when we opened scratch that we would be using tree barks um things like that and we just kind of stumbled onto those things. And then a lot of times those lead us on a rabbit hole of experimentation and a bunch of different beers. Um, so, it, and that's kind of just allowed us to, I don't know, go down different paths of, of thought about how, how to create a beer, what to do with it. One thing that we've been talking about a lot in the last year or two is, is yeast. Um, we've been using our sourdough culture as our house yeast for like four or five years um and it it continues to amaze me actually how much we learn about it and how much we don't know about it as much as we do know about it um but we've been wanting to um add to the culture in some way or take it on its own journey <laughs> through life um do different things to it you know maybe combine it with a different culture and see what it does but to give us more, even more flexibility with our fermentation style and character. Um, we do order some lab laboratory yeast here and there for styles that we just really like a certain way. Um, but we would love to be able to play with our yeast more and to be able to get it to do different things. That's probably one thing that we kind of have in mind for the next couple years of, of how Scratch might evolve and continue to experiment. What have you been zeroing in on for your house culture? Is, are there certain flavor profiles? Are there certain things that, that your house culture can do yeah, that you've pushed it that, towards? Yeah, The things that it does really well um, are, uh, as far as styles go, are Saison styles, um, wheat beers, Hefeweizen. Um, it does sour all of our sour beers are with the, the sourdough culture um and we've kind of just learned like what temperature ranges it likes and how it responds to hops and um how it responds to other plants um you know hopping rates and stuff like that um and what we did last year as an experiment was we brewed every single beer with the sourdough culture um we tried it like under lager temperatures, which we'd never done before. Um, 
it didn't really seem to do very well initially with beers that had like crystal malts or other more highly kilned malts. And we figured out how to ferment it in a way where it didn't give some off flavors that it was giving before. Um, so just in the last year, forcing ourselves to use it for every single beer taught us even more than we ha- were already learning about it. Um, so I don't, did I answer your question? What was your question? No, I, I just sort of, you know, your house culture and how, yeah. And how it's evolved and, you know, what yeah. does it do specifically for you guys? And yeah, yeah. It, it handles the majority of the base beers that we, that we, um, have been making at scratch and we would love for it to attenuate a little bit more. We would love for it to, um, sometimes be less, prominent because it is pretty aromatic um maybe sometimes we want something a little bit cleaner um stuff like that so we're trying to figure out how we can continue to work with it manipulate it and and have it do other things for us how has COVID-19 changed the brewery oh yeah that's another 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 big question um from an immediate standpoint, uh, we laid off all of our part-time staff. Um, we are no longer open for on-site sales uh, as of March 15th. Um, and we are still allowed to be open for to-go sales. So we do have people um, purchase beer online and pick it up at the brewery um, to go. We are doing a lot more distribution now than we did before. Um, we are trying to send a beer out to as many local retailers as we possibly can. And they've actually been really great partners throughout this since retail has um, been retail liquor has been um, so much higher in the last month or so um, mm-hmm. than it was before. And I, for me, I think that's one of the bright spots of this is that at least there is some outlet for sales and it's just getting the beer there, which is a challenge. I mean, we're, we're a brewery that doesn't do a whole lot of, um, package um and we're set up to bottle condition beers so it's a long process to get beer into a bottle and then get it to a retailer so to turn around on a dime and try to get as much beer to a retailer as possible is a pretty big challenge um but that's what we're that's what we're kind of looking at now is is how can we do a little bit more of that and try to get more beer into bottles and get it out um that way uh otherwise you know we're we're still brewing we're not brewing as much um we we're still working and partly working from home and um there's only three of us that are are working in the brewery now uh helping customers and and doing beer or gardening work um so we're just a small staff and shoestringing it a little bit yeah but but I, I have hopes that, you know, we'll, we'll survive this and um, we'll see what happens on the other side. Well, your brewery has been on my bucket list to visit for quite some time. And uh, I think once everything is lifted, I'm going to make it happen. So I'm looking forward to tasting some of your creations, uh, where they're made and where the ingredients come from. And I hope we would that, love to have you. hope yeah, it happens it sooner than later. I hope so. Yeah. 
Thanks so much for taking the time this afternoon. I, uh, I, I've gotten down this uh, schedule for recording the podcast uh, with fellow parents of young kids, uh, and we're getting it in under nap time. So um, perfect. I'll let you. We're, we're under nap time today, and I'm very grateful. <laughs> Thank I'll, you, John. I'll let you get some, some, uh, some rest of yourself. But uh, thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Like so many of you, I'm eager for things to ease up a bit, so long as it's safe to do so. And I'm hoping that I can get to scratch and get it checked off of my brewery bucket list sometime soon. What's on your beer bucket list? And who would you like to hear on the show to get you excited for that eventual trip? Drop me a line. If you want to reach out, I'm at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or on Twitter at John underscore Hall. So as I've said, phone interviews are going to be the new normal for a while. And while they don't have the same feel as being face-to-face with someone, I'm still going to work to bring you engaging conversations with some of Beer's most interesting people. And I've dug all of the emails and messages that you're sharing during your time in isolation. We are all in this together, and a lot of us are drinking the beer that other half has been promoting for the last couple of weeks, and hopefully your local brewery has some as well, and you've been able to get it for to go pick up. This show, along with the Beer Edge podcast, we found a way into your home routines, and for that, I'm really appreciative. If there's anything that we can be doing better, again, please don't hesitate to reach out. And Beer Edge is on all of the social media channels at The Beer Edge. Don't forget to leave a review online. It'll help other folks find the podcast. So Nate Schweber is the man who does the music. Jeff Quinn designed the logo. Andy Crouch, as you now know, is over at The Beer Edge podcast, and you should listen to that every week. And subscribe to it today. Never miss an episode. If you'd like to advertise on that show or this one, drop me a line. And speaking of that, this show is sponsored by New Holland Brewing. Did you know that the term dragon's milk has been around since the 17th century? It was used to describe potent ales and elixirs that were worthy of celebration, a reward at the end of a perilous journey. New Holland Brewing Company is proud to continue that tradition with the dragon's milk family of beers. Whether it's the original bourbon barrel-aged stout or the mysterious Dragon's Milk White, a white stout aged in bourbon barrels and brewed with chocolate, coffee, and vanilla, the legend of Dragon's Milk continues to grow, and we'll raise a glass to that. Learn more at dragonsmilk.com. And of course, we're produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. Help support beer journalism covering the industry that we care about so much by subscribing to the twice-weekly newsletter. Learn more at our revamped website, beeredge.com. And this show, we put out new episodes every Wednesday, and that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and to think beer, and I hope you'll tune in. For now, take care, and toast the good times to come. Thanks.